Dave Williams presents Conversations.Buzz. David Cole is uh, an attorney with Lynn Pinker, Hurst, and Schweigman here in Dallas. He is uh, one of the top appellate lawyers in Texas and has a lot of awards that say so. He's a bona fide expert in the Constitution and the Supreme Court. He appears frequently in national media coverage of major cases, and he is the guy that we turn to on our morning show on KLIF here in Dallas when we need answers. And uh, I also note, David, that uh, on your on your uh, web page from uh, on uh, Lynn Pinker, Hurst, and Schwegman, it says that you're also the only known Texas appellate lawyer who has been fictionalized in a romance novel series. Yeah. Really? Well, now, so my wife is also a lawyer, and she represents, she has her solo practice, has her own practice. She represents romance novelists. Uh, it's an unusual niche. It's extremely interesting. All kinds of intellectual property and business issues uh, in this rapidly evolving e-commerce marketplace. And her first really uh, substantial client in that area was her pen name is Joanna Wild. And Joanna was so grateful for a good result that my wife got in the case that she wrote in uh, a lawyer character into the motorcycle gang series, Adobe Coles. I have a quote on the wall. He looked like a big, dumb, good old boy, but the man was brilliant. Thanks, Joanna. And so uh, the Reaper series is a very popular series about the Reaper motorcycle gang. There's a new one that's been written for a while now that she hasn't released yet. So stay tuned for more adventures of Doby Coles. All right. That's great. Um, and then, uh, Dave, just to... But back at you, I love being on you guys. You guys, I, I know legal issues can be sort of dry and can become boring. You guys ask good questions to make it interesting to people. That's important. We need to think about these things, even if the vocabulary can be kind of daunting sometimes. Uh, and it's neat to get to talk to you now for longer than two and a half minutes, plus an interruption for the traffic, because it's it's right. nice to explore these things a little bit more with you. That's the whole. That's the whole point of this entire podcast that I'm putting together is that, uh, you know, radio has been very good to me. I love radio, uh, but it does get frustrating when we have uh, somebody really interesting to talk with and we have some really interesting subject uh, matter to, to discuss, and, but we only have limited time and that's just, that's just the nature of the business. So I want to dive in and do, you know, do this stuff a little more in depth so we can give everybody a bigger perspective. Sure. We'll see how that goes. Okay. Uh, Roe v. Wade. Let's start at the beginning. Can you give us a brief history of that case to, going back to 1973 or beyond if we have to? Sure. Look, before I talk about Roe, I'll just talk a little bit about how, how to humanize discussions about laws. I think it's useful for everyone. Yeah. The case books that used to fill up libraries that now are all online, they're storybooks. They're one story after another. And what courts of appeal do when they take the perspectives of the different parties and put them together is they fit the party stories into the broader narrative of American law. And that's real. We do it in a very technical way because to have the rule of law requires you to do it that way. But we're basically professional storytellers in the law generally and particularly in appellate work, what I do. And so if you keep that as your mind, in mind as you talk, it's much easier because we're all natural storytellers and listeners to stories. It's in our nature. And so if you think of the law as a series of stories, it helps you kind of get your hands around it a little bit better. Thus, a story. Roe. Um, Roe versus Wade came from Dallas. 
Uh, the Wade is Henry Wade, the famous cigar chomping district attorney. Uh, he'd like to say he never lost a case except the one he didn't have anything to do with. Uh, he wasn't really <laughs> the defendant in the case. He was just he was the name defendant, but he didn't do anything. He was just named because he was the person in charge of enforcing the criminal laws in Texas at the time. And those criminal laws made it a felony to perform an abortion or to help someone uh, seek out or perform an abortion. And a test case was brought where someone indicated their desire to do such a thing. Uh, it worked its way to the Supreme Court, and it fell into the hands of Harry Blackman, uh, who has been on the Supreme Court for a while. Blackman's uh, practice before he became a Supreme Court justice was health care law, medical law. He represented the Mayo Clinic for many, many years. He thought long and hard in that work about issues of medical ethics, uh, medical responsibility, the role of medicine in society. And so he saw this case as a he saw it as a legal case, of course, because he's the Supreme Court of the United States. But more fundamentally, he saw it as a case about the interaction between doctor and patient. And that's the opinion that he wrote. Roe is an opinion that talks a lot about the history of medicine and medical ethics and the rights of patients, the rights of doctors, and is a little light on legal analysis. Um, he grounds all of that in traditions of the Constitution and the Constitution's broad protections of individual liberty. And there's the opinion. It comes out, I believe it was 6-3. Um, a dissenter, Byron White, famously called it a naked exercise in judicial power. Uh, but be that as it may, that was the law. And struck down as unconstitutional, the criminal laws in Texas at the time and in a number of other states that had similar laws. That was the law for 50 years. There was a little interlude in 1992-93, I forget when, I was in law school at the time, when a challenge to Roe made its way back to the Supreme Court, uh, Planned Parenthood against Casey. Uh, Roe had been subject to a lot of criticism on the right for being uh, sort of Harry Blackman waxing poetic as opposed to Harry Blackman applying established constitutional law. Uh, the Supreme Court sort of split the difference in that case, maintained Roe as a precedent, but established a new balancing test for when a uh, law would uh, be contrary to Roe. Uh, the test was sort of inscrutable. No one was too sure what it meant, but Roe was still on the books. And Roe, as amended by Planned Parenthood, remained the law of the United States and created a serious constitutional problem to any uh, meaningful regulation of abortion until a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, when the Supreme Court overruled Roe. So what, that's what, where it came from and how we got to be there. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by uh, Roe as amended by Planned Parenthood? So that's Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the late 90s. The concept of Roe was based on trimesters of pregnancy. Um, and it's different trimesters. The state had a potentially different regulatory interest. The interest of the woman varied. Uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey overlaid on that a sort of balancing test where you looked at the state's interest and whether it was all these different things were reasonable. And so what we've had since 93, when Casey came out, is Roe plus Casey. It's the basic structure of Roe plus this balancing test that Justice Kennedy came up with as kind of a compromise among the different wings of the court at the time. And then that overall structure, both Roe and Casey, were what was overruled in the recent Dobbs opinion. It is, uh, this, this case has been argued publicly for nearly 50 years. Why did it take so long for the court to have a new look at the original decision? Was it simply a matter of uh, the right case didn't come along? A little bit of both. You had a combination of things come together. Um, 
what animated Casey back in 1993, when I say, I may call it Planned Parenthood, I may call it Casey's, Planned okay. Parenthood versus Casey's, name of the case. So I, what, um, where the court found common ground in Casey was not necessarily so much about the protection of abortion as a constitutional right, but about the importance of precedent. And Justice Kennedy's opinion in that case said, we just don't overrule ourselves very much. And uh, when we have done it in the past, and he gave a couple of examples, uh, it's been because something that we did has been proven absolutely wrong by events. And the, the, the big example that he gave is uh, Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, the Supreme Court in the late 19th century and Plessy versus Ferguson held that separate but equal was just fine that the Constitution guaranteed equal protection. If you got equal schooling, even if it was separated, no worries, no problem. It became, by the 50s, it was clear that that was a joke, that, that there was no such thing as separate but equal. It just wasn't equal anywhere. And the court said, oops, we got that wrong. Plessy's overruled. Brown takes its place. But in, when, when they wrote the Casey opinion 20 years after Roe, they said nothing's changed. But can, excuse me, hmm? can, can, can the court just make that decision on its own? We need to so, go back and visit something that we talked about years ago, or does it, very, a new case have to bring it up to that level? It's a profound question. It cannot do it on its own, and that's an important check on judicial power. Our Constitution limits the power of the federal courts to a case or a controversy, and that means that courts who have great power over all kinds of things are constrained because they can't pick what to exercise that power over. Now, the Supreme Court can pick what among the cases that apply to it. So it has discretion there. But if nobody wants to litigate about an issue, the courts are just out of luck. They can't just come up with something on their own. And that's a very important limit. Congress, the president, they can do whatever they want to. They can take up an issue and advance it on behalf of the people. Courts can't do that. Someone has to bring it to them. Uh, now, there are abortion test cases all the time. So that's not really uh, that much of a limit here. But it is a constraint. And and that that argument about you may not love Justice Blackmun's reasoning in Roe, but it's been the law for a long time. That was based on 20 odd years in the Casey case. By the time Dobbs came around, it had been 50 years. That's a lot of precedent and a lot of law that is built up around it, both in the abortion setting, but Roe's gotten cited in a bunch of other areas of law as well as a sort of snapshot of what the Constitution protects. And so that's a substantial part of the Dobbs opinion is there's a the Justice Alito summarizes the state of play by saying, as a Supreme Court, we have the power to overrule ourselves. That's why we're supreme. But we obviously can't use that just whenever we feel like it, because then people lose confidence in the law. So we have a five part test that we apply to decide when it's fair to overrule something we've done before. And all five of those ching, 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 they say we should overrule Roe. Um, most of his opinion is about the first factor, whether or not Roe was correctly decided, and he wails on Roe for page after page after page. The other four, eh, <laughs> it's a little lighter. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you you can, that's if you're going to poke holes at Dobbs, that's where you're going to poke holes in it, is in his analysis of those four factors. But he said it, that's what the law is now, that's how the Supreme Court viewed its precedent, and now Roe joins a, a collection of cases that the Supreme Court has overruled: Brown versus Board, uh, you know, Dred Scott. Uh, uh, there's a case called Lochner that has sort of faded away in the public mind now, but was really, really important in the 1930s when the New Deal was taking effect and 
how much power the government had to respond to the Great Depression. So anyway, it's now in the dust heap along with those other cases. So the Supreme Court can do it, and they chose to do it here. You 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 lost me at Dobbs, and maybe I just wasn't paying any attention. Is this is this the Mississippi case yes. that, that brought that, it up now? That's correct. It's Dobbs versus somebody or somebody versus Dobbs. I frankly forgot the name of the case, but Dobbs is the case that was decided June 24th at Overruled Road. And that was uh, that was uh, with regards to the Mississippi state law that uh, proclaimed uh, abortion illegal after 15 weeks. Is that right? Correct. And that, that law, I mean, it was, it, this goes to your earlier question about what changed, because that, that, States have been pushing at that for some time. Roe, remember, is based on trimesters. So if you have a law that injects the state into a decision about abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy, you're directly going against Roe. And so a similar sort of challenge had sort of percolated to the Supreme Court and they had, it had been found unconstitutional under Roe and the court didn't review it a couple of years back, or they reviewed it and affirmed, I think. Um, this was a very similar law. It was sort of back again. And I said a number of things came together. Um, you know, just the legislatures kept passing these laws. People kept bringing cases about them. And it's no secret what else happened. The Supreme Court makeup changed. Uh, President Trump was elected and he appointed three very conservative people to the Supreme Court. And whereas with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you had sort of a more of a mix of opinions with a Justice Kennedy floating around in the middle and Justice O'Connor. You now have a Supreme Court where you have six justices who are plainly on the right of the political spectrum and the judicial conservative spectrum, three that are fairly called liberal, and six is a lot. You can lose one and you still have a majority. That happened, and that is one of the reasons why when this thing percolated back up to the court again, they took another look and had a different view. I think you come right down to the heart of the of the conversation, and that is, is the Supreme Court biased? And you just you just used a phrase that I've never heard before. You said judicial conservatism. Mm. And I guess that that is different than uh, political or personal conservatism in some way. Yeah. So let, I, I uh, very the Supreme Court is 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 very interesting to watch, but honestly, doesn't have a lot to do with day to day life. I mean, they set big principles that in turn get applied by the lower courts in the cases that you actually handle in law practice. Uh, and so as an appellate lawyer, I spend a great deal of time watching the intermediate courts of appeals for this area. There's a state court here in Dallas and surrounding counties. And then there's the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that covers Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. There are a dozen such circuits around the country with different uh, jurisdictions. And the Fifth Circuit, the, anytime somebody writes a news story about the Fifth Circuit, they say the Fifth Circuit, comma, a conservative court. Right. And I've given presentations about that, and I'll, I'll just get online and collect the last 10 times people said that and make a little montage at the beginning of the PowerPoint, because <laughs> that word applied to judges means a lot of different things. Examples, and this I'm referring here with the Fifth Circuit in mind, but you can see where I'm going from. It can refer to policy outcomes conservatives generally don't like abortion. So that's one thing that's conservative. But another thing that's conservative... But, but, is, but that's the big question. But is that... Don't yeah. lose your place here. Mm -hmm. But is that is that based upon their their own uh, uh, their own personal morality and yeah. beliefs and maybe even religious beliefs? Or when you say they 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 don't don't uh, believe in abortion, is it based strictly on the law? So there's a combination there. Judges are human. And they bring with them their own personal beliefs about things. However, 
it's, it's probably not a coincidence, and some of this is personal belief, a lot of it's philosophy, though, that the justices on the Supreme Court that don't really much care for abortion also happen to be fans of what is called a conservative approach to reading the Constitution uh, that emphasizes the plain text of the Constitution, the original intent of the people that drafted the Constitution, the historical record they left behind at that time, and uh, and, and that's considered more kind of judicially conservative. Justice Gorsuch is a great example of that because he he said in his confirmation hearings, I'm all about plain text and original understanding, and I follow that wherever it goes. If it leads me to a liberal result, well, that's where I end up. And he's right. He's the guy that wrote the opinion that found that half of Oklahoma was still under Indian criminal jurisdiction. You know, he's the guy that wrote an opinion about the uh, discrimination statutes that applied them to single sex marriages in a way that a lot of political conservatives disagreed with. So he's sort of an example of I have a way of looking and that's just where I'm going to go. Now, some other justices, perhaps policy policy is a legitimate consideration. You can look at you, you're not blind to what your opinion is going to cause. And so that enters the picture, too. Here's another example. Uh, this doesn't have anything to do with abortion, but it illustrates um, something we see in our law practice. Let's say that you get a great big judgment in the trial court. I sue you for selling a defective product. I'm injured by it, and I win a jury verdict for a whole pile of money, millions of dollars. Judgment is entered. I appeal to the Court of Appeals, a conservative court. What is their predisposition going to be? Well, some people who are conservative distrust large judgments. They just think that when numbers get too big, people have probably lost their common sense. So yeah. they're skeptical about that. Yeah. Other people are conservative about the process. And they say the Constitution guarantees you a right to jury trial under the Seventh Amendment. And if the jury saw it that way, that's just what it's going to be. And I'm going to be very deferential to what the jury did, and I'm not going to substitute my judgment. Those are both principled conservative approaches to what happens in the trial court, and they're opposite. So what I, yeah, what I hear you saying is that there is a difference between a strict constitutionalist yes. and a constitutionalist without the word strict in it. The word conservative by itself means very little. It can, it can mean politics. It can mean a way of thinking about the Constitution. It can mean a focus on process over outcome. It can mean a diet. I mean, it, can, <laughs> it means a lot of different things. And so it, we tend to use conservative as a shorthand for Republican yeah, in, our, yeah. in our discussion. Yeah. But applied to the courts, that doesn't really work. It sort of kind of works. Uh, because often a conservative approach to the Constitution produces a conservative policy result, but it doesn't necessarily. Uh, Justice Scalia was famous for this. He's the ultimate plain meaning guy. He ruled for criminal defendants all the time because he would say the, the, the federal government is prosecuting this guy for a crime. OK, so conservative, you're against crime, right? You're kind of going to be on the state side. But he said, but that's not the law doesn't say that. The law says X is illegal, but not Y. And this guy did Y. Mm -hmm. Let him go. And the liberals on the court are like, Scalia, yeah. And they join. And so that's an example of how conservatism doesn't always lead you where you think it might go. Is that an explanation of John Roberts as well? I would explain him as taking his title of chief justice very, very seriously. And his, his eye, one eye is on the case in front of him, and one eye is on the long game. 
Um, and he doesn't want to be remembered as the chief justice that didn't pay attention to precedent. And time and time again, he has tried to come up with middle ground opinions, kind of like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that sort of had a little bit for everyone. They keep the precedent on the books so you don't overrule, but you'll change it in the test and the way you apply it. And he's he doesn't want the court to be seen as just sort of blowing in the political winds. Now, his opinion in the Dobbs case got exactly one vote, his own, and nobody yeah. else wanted to join him. Yeah. So he may be a little anachronistic in that view. That may just not be where we are. Maybe his opinion wasn't compelling. I can't tell you. But his, I put it this way, his, um, there's a lot, there have been a lot of chief justices of the United States. Some are remembered as very clever and consensus builders. Some are remembered as big jerks. Um, some are remembered as incompetent. He wants to be remembered as a guy that did a good job as a steward of the Supreme Court. And I think he feels bad about Dobbs. I think he thinks the court was too strong and came across too political. And that in the long run, that's not a good thing for the institution. Well, he seems to feel kind of bad about this recent Roe v. Wade decision, that's saying exactly that it right. wasn't necessary to go this far. That's what he said in his opinion. He said we didn't. We could have gotten exactly here by just tweaking the balancing test in Casey a little bit. We could have kept Roe on the books. We could have kept Casey on the books. Yeah. But we could have gotten somewhere that everybody could live with as a policy matter, and we could have kicked this down the road another 25 years and worried about it then, and everybody would forget about it. But that isn't what happened, and that's not the world we live in. We just live in more divisive times than he's wanting to live in. Boy. We're unpacking a lot. I think this is fascinating. Oh, this it's, is gonna, I'm, it's kind of rattling on a little bit, but there's, it's like we're talking about the beginning of your story, is that the story of this court ties into, you know, similar struggles by chief justices in yeah. some, with similar social problems. We talked about the New Deal earlier. Right. The, the, at the time, the, the Lochner case I referred to was one where the Supreme Court was really, really committed going into the 1930s to free market economics. If you had a law that was seen as like a minimum wage law that was seen as interfering with the free market, they would declare it unconstitutional as a violation of the individual liberty of the people involved. The depression hits and it's clear the free market ain't working. <laughs> we, you've got to get the government involved to get people back to work. Mm. And so the, the New Deal programs spend money here and spend money there and the Supreme Court strikes them all down. One after the other is unconstitutional. FDR says, I got a solution to this. I'm going to put 10 more justices on the Supreme Court oh, that got a rule for me. Yeah. And that became a crisis because uh, you know, the Supreme Court realized, I think, that they were going to lose, that the, the public mood would, may not have been a lot with FDR, but it was generally with him. People didn't like being out of work and they wanted to have something to do. And miraculously, the Supreme Court reconsidered its view of the Constitution. <laughs> and now economic liberty is protected by the Constitution, but to a much lower degree. And all of a sudden, the New Deal programs became acceptable. And there we find ourselves. The switch in time to save nine. Yeah, F FDR's threat to pack the court, boy, that is that is still having uh, an echo today. And and it's, it's, I, it's I, often I, threatened and rarely done, but yeah. that time around, he almost did it. And he probably, we'd have had a 20-person Supreme Court if he'd had his way. Yeah, I want, I want to revisit that sure. briefly in a little bit. But let's go back to abortion for just a yes. minute, because it's a very, very complicated matter. And I think a lot of, everybody understands that. But when you hear people talk about it, they don't seem to get it at all. And that's because, you know, the noisy extremes are making all the noise. And the rest of us are just sitting here scratching our heads going, well, 
you know, in one respect, sure, I respect a woman's right to make her own decisions about her life and her body, of course. On the other hand, we're not just talking about her body. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you get into all of the breakdowns of when it should be legal to do so, if it's going to be legal, and when it's not. As I was reading, and I want to share this with our listeners here a little bit, uh, an article that came out at the end of June, so it's very recent, from the Brookings, Inst Brookings mm -hmm. Institution. And they wrote, uh, although some Americans have absolutist views on abortion, most believe that it is acceptability, that its acceptability depends on circumstances. Mm -hmm. Roughly speaking, between 25 and 35% of Americans think abortion should always be legal. 10 to 15% think it should never be legal. And the remaining 50 to 65% are split between those who think that it should be mostly legal with some exceptions and mostly illegal with some exceptions. So, you know, it's a really complicated thing and just carrying a sign saying, my body, my, my right, or whatever it is, or, you know, uh, you know, thou shalt not kill or what the, these uh, really don't help in my view, because yeah. people don't sit down and say, well, let's talk about this. Let's find out what it's all about. And that's what we're trying to do here right now. Yeah. So a, a couple of thoughts about that. Um, one very general one about why it's such a difficult issue to talk about. I recently went to a, a conference of lawyers in this federal circuit. And one of the speakers was a uh, Lisa Blatt from Washington, D.C. She's one of the top Supreme Court advocates, very, very uh, intelligent person, an excellent lawyer. And she said, I'm here to talk about the Dobbs case, the abortion cases and how they came out. I just wrote down a list of all the reasons why abortion is controversial. And so she picks up a piece of paper and she says, abortion involves discussion of God, life, death, sex, crime, <laughs> He goes through, and it's like every hot button issue you can think of is in yes. there. And it's it, it, she's right. I mean, it's very hard to talk about it without engaging not just one, but a lot of issues that people have strong feelings about. Um, second thing is that poll that poll result you cite is is not atypical. You have people that are kind of in the middle, but it's interesting to think about the what the the mechanics of how people end up there. I think a lot of people intuitively feel like abortion, if they feel like abortion is problematic, they sort of feel like it ought to be okay in cases of rape and incest. Mm, That's yeah. a commonly held view. Right. And there are a lot of laws out there that, that in fact strike that balance. But poke on that for a little bit. Wait a minute. If, if your position is that life begins at conception and there's, and you've got this life why does it matter where the life came from uh, is the counter argument. And the minute you start making exceptions, you've sort of moved from absolutist to striking a bargain. And people don't realize they're doing that, but they are. And, and where people sort of naturally seem to end up on the issue is sort of inherently a compromised position. I think that's, I don't sure where to go with that, but it's an interesting fact that people tend to ra rarely tend to instinctively find themselves on one end of the spectrum or the other. Now, plenty of people do. There are plenty of people out there with very strong opinions, but I think most people are kind of in the middle and yeah. it's a consensus position naturally. So that's, and that leads to what Justice Alito said in his opinion that overruled Roe. The, the key line in the opinion is right at the beginning. And he says something like this, uh, it is time to overrule Roe, it is time to return the issue of abortion 
to the people's elected representatives. And he goes on from there. Fair enough. And I think he was thinking state legislatures when he wrote that. But just in Texas in the last six weeks, all these representatives have been coming out of the woodwork, their cities and their counties and their DAs and their church leaders. And there's like people in the next state over and there's Mexico that says, hey, come here, abortion's legal here. We got a lot of representatives. Yeah. I had no idea I had all these representatives um, and they all have a view. And um, it's turned. So not, now we have a situation where not only do you have this very difficult issue to talk about because it has all these hot button things, but you have all these people talking about it. <laughs> At some level, that's healthy. I mean, we've been off in court on this for 50 years and been talking about it in lawyeries, and maybe we have gotten a little removed from ordinary people and ordinary life and talking about this issue. But now that it's been returned to the political mainstream, oh my goodness, there's so much talking. <laughs> there's so many views. It's going to take a while just to sort out who has the right to be heard on this. Well, that's for sure. And 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 you brought up, brought up another uh, primary consideration that people think about but don't really talk about. And I think in most cases don't really tie it in to this particular decision. And that is the... Uh, uh, the very strong implication on the, in the Constitution that uh, matters of personal liberties at some level are up to the states to decide. Yeah. And this is one of those. Gun law is another huge example. Why did the founders do it that way? Why, why well, aren't the, it, go ahead. It's, there's a It's a difficult history. Um, the In some ways, constitutional law doesn't start until after the Civil War. Um, the first words of the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment are, uh, well, it may not be the first words, but the first words that matter are Congress shall not. The Bill of Rights, is a as written, is a constraint on the federal government. Um, it doesn't say anything about what states can or can't do other than what it says in the Constitution about the political process. And uh, that was in no small part motivated by economic protection of slavery. Uh, the Constitution contains a number of very awkward compromises that were made with the Southern states to keep the Union together uh, in order to sort of paper over slavery and kick it down the road. Uh, that didn't, They kicked it down the road to 1860 and they had a big war about it for five years. And then the result of that was the three post-Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that made slavery unconstitutional or illegal under the U.S. Constitution, uh, that uh, eliminated discrimination about voting based on race and the 14th Amendment, which applies the Bill of Rights to the states and says, OK, states, no more of this. <laughs> Everybody's going to play by the same rules now. And uh, that's easy enough as to stuff like speech, gun control, or, or the right to possess a firearm. Those are expressly set out in the Bill of Rights. But the Bill of Rights contains general language about due process, and the 14th Amendment contains general language about due process and equal protection of the laws. And so a lot of modern constitutional law is based on the idea that a state can't do something under the 14th Amendment that treats people unevenly, that treats people unfairly. That's kind of the idea about the gay marriage cases in, in no small part is you've got two different groups of people that want to take advantage of this. And there's not a good reason to separate one group from the other to same sex and man, woman. And so that idea came in. So the, the answer is the, the historic answer is it took a long time to bring states fully within the constitutional framework that protects individual liberty. 
what exactly the individual liberties are that are protected by those open-ended provisions in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments are debatable and are debatable to this day. It's not entirely clear. To Clarence Thomas, that's sort of annoying, and we need to define that in a limited way. To other people, it's open-ended on purpose so that we can sort of test things out and expand and contract the Constitution in response to what's going on in the world out there. And that's a fundamental philosophical debate between very intelligent people. A little digression here because of something you said a moment ago. Sure. Uh, there was, you were talking about the uh, Bill of Rights, the Ten Amendments. Right. And I've always thought about this because the, the founders were obviously, and I think I've said to you on the radio before, that it seems to me that they must have been divinely inspired, if you, you, know, if you mm-hmm. believe in that sort of thing. They had wisdom beyond their years as individuals. They had uh, they had no place to start in terms of trying to create laws for a country, except for what they came from in, in England, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and that of course was uh, uh, basically a, a one man one rule government anyway. So they said they sat down and they they put together this magnificent document. The Constitution of the United States to this day is hailed around the, the world mm-hmm. and, and often copied. But they left out some really important things in their first go at it. That reminds me of uh, what was the, the Mel Brooks movie, uh, History of the World, when he comes out with three tablets as as yeah. Moses. And he says, <laughs> yeah. behold, the 15 the amendments. amendments. And he drops one. Yeah. And he says, behold, the 10, am- ten uh, commandments. <laughs> how did how did they miss things like free speech and and religion? It was the pack. It was a package deal. I mean, the the the. All of that was confirmed around the same time that the Bill of Rights was basically an up down. And a number of states said, we're not going to agree to this constitution unless you. And so they were just, it was a drafting process. Everybody oh. could get behind the voting structures and the constitution, but mainly Northern states were like, come on, we got to have some checks here. Southern states too, I guess it's not fair. Uh, and so it was sort of a package deal. And that's just the way it ended up getting written. So it wasn't something that happened like 30 years later. No, it was all sort of in the same uh, time period, all confirmed around the same time. The The interesting uh, wrinkle there, though, that to, your, to your point is the Constitution has been amended uh, very few times. There's 10 amendments that are sort of basically part of the enactment. Uh, there are two amendments then, the 11th and 12th, that are basically fixing screw-ups in the drafting. Uh, the 11th answers a question that just wasn't answered about where you could sue for certain pro- claims that today is called sovereign immunity. Back then, it involved debt for the Revolutionary War, which was like a massive problem for the country. Um, the 12th fixed uh, uh, this problem where the, the losing party for president would become the vice president. That worked really well. Not and so that you had, you know, Aaron Burr as Thomas Jefferson's vice president. Wow. So that the 12th Amendment fixed that. Oops. It and it seemed to make there. sense, though. Yeah, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But then you realize what happened. I mean, everyone just fights and nobody gets anything done. And you got all these really close elections and it just didn't work. So the 12th Amendment. Well, besides that, your chief executive would have diametrically opposed views yeah. on everything. Right. And so you think it's bad now. It's bad because you got Aaron Burr going out and shooting the Treasury Secretary. <laughs> right. So it just wasn't the 12th Amendment rebooted that. It just didn't work the way it was written. Then you have the Civil War Amendments, 13, 14, 15. That leaves like a dozen since the Civil War. Uh, so some of that is that it's basically right. Uh, other than the 14th Amendment that we just talked about, that was that, that how it necessity for it. 
Uh, some of it is it's just really, really hard to do. You have to have an enormous national consensus about something to get an amendment off the ground and uh, approved of in the requisite number of states. And so, you know, there's a fair argument that that's just an error, that the Constitution is just too hard to amend and it should be easier so that people can take up issues like gay marriage and abortion and work those into the constitutional framework. The merits of that argument I've never really studied, but it is certainly true that there just haven't been a lot of amendments. And there's no there's no denying that's because it's very hard. Yeah. Well, uh, that may be a good thing, depending on how you look it at may it. may well be. Look, another thing that in the Constitution that's very hard is impeachment. It's been tried and tried a couple of times with President Trump. Never worked on a president because it's virtually impossible. Yeah. I mean, the standard you have to satisfy, it's one thing to bring articles. That's happened several times. But to actually convict in the Senate, you know, no one's ever managed to do it. And it's whether that's good or bad is neither here nor there. It's expressed in the Constitution. Yeah. And it's just it, in history has proven it to be basically undoable. Well, and history will be the judge in each case. You're right. Maybe we shouldn't have done it that way. But so far, we're still ticking. You know, <laughs> yeah, history's still running. About um, about about changing uh, changing the uh, the way we go about uh, making amendments that would require a constitutional convention, and that also is almost impossible to put together. Right? Yes, that, that is the framers, to their credit, had they have the you know article at the end about how to change everything we just said. And they have the framework for amendment. But you can also have a new convention where you can start over again and do a new document. Very difficult to do, probably very unwise. Um, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it's making some funny noises, it ain't broke. Just keep working with it. And we've resisted that impulse and probably will for the forever. I just think anyone that gets excited about having a convention usually loses their excitement after a little while. But it's in there and it's something that's available to us if we uh, ever felt it a desire to do so. We've heard a lot lately after this Roe v. Wade decision. Some people think there should be age <clears throat> and or term limits on Supreme Court, Supreme Court justices. Uh, why aren't there? And what do you think about it? So it's it, it's pretty clearly unconstitutional to oppose them now. Uh, the, the, the Constitution, as it is presently understood, envisions uh, enormous uh, protection for federal judges from political pressures. And once you get through the uh, advice and consent of the Senate, to a presidential appointment, you're there forever. Your salary can't be reduced. You can only be removed if you're impeached, which basically means you commit a crime. And uh, as long as you are conduct yourself in a lawful way, you can rule however you please. And that has served us well to have a judiciary that is that independent, that doesn't have to run for re-election and be raising money all the time. Our state courts, we have that, and it's a different dynamic. It's not better or worse, but for a national government, it makes a lot of sense. Every federal judge in the country is sort of above it all politically. Um, the, that comes, though, with some, you can criticize that. You can criticize uh, federal judges for getting out of touch because they don't have to be involved with politics, and they can serve forever, and some do. There, there are, I think there's a sitting federal judge in the country, not that active, but he's 100 years old. Um, really? Justice Reevely, or Judge Reevely, on our Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals served not much. He wasn't sitting a lot as he got older, but he served into his 90s. He died at 99. Wow. And he still held a position of senior judge on the, on the Court of Appeals. So um, it, it, it's, a, you know, it's a fair point where the generally accepted retirement age out there is 65 
And that's really kind of when you're just hitting your stride as a Supreme Court justice. There's a sort of a disconnect. Well, these days, that's true for people of all careers and all walks of life. 65, you're, you're, just, you're just getting to a point where you're Very good true. at what you do. Very true. We've changed. I mean, society has changed. Age is different. I mean, the founders put in the Constitution, by the way, you had to be, I forget how old, 30 or something to be president, because to them, that was pretty old. I mean, if you've gotten that far, oh my God, you know, I can't, God had your back. I can't um, believe I'm going to tell you something about the Constitution. It was 35. 35. There you go. So, but, <laughs> but to them, that's like you're a distinguished old man by the yeah. time you've gotten there. And so today we see that as a young end, but they didn't see it that way. Well, weren't Weren't the founders largely, I think mo there were some that were, if not in their late teens, in their early 20s. They right? were young. It was a young man's game. I mean, who else was going to come to the U.S. and settle? And they were, I mean, look, there's no secret. The framers of the Constitution were white and they were wealthy, um, uh, but they were also, they were young. They were also, by the way, drunk. The the <laughs> statistics about how much alcohol was consumed at the Constitutional <laughs> Convention is astonishing. I think that there wasn't a whole lot of entertainment, I guess, back then, but, but they represented a certain demographic. They were the people who you would think would be into a new country. They were, they were, they're white. They had money. They had invested. They had a lot of energy. And with the exception of Ben Franklin, who was uh, astonishingly old for his time, um, they were all youthful. Um, and that's just the way it was back then. There was a lot of, I mean, they didn't know what microbes were, you know, something like the flu comes in, it would kill half the city in a way that we just don't have today. Sure. So, so the uh, well that goes to the Supreme Court today is it what what I my own this is what's my own view about this. Other people have their own views, but I feel like the process of, of Supreme Court term limitation today has basically become sort of an actuarial bet. I mean, a judge, a justice sitting on the Supreme Court makes a decision about am I going to live out this term or not, and depending on whether or not they make that guess correctly, that influences the political makeup of the term of the court in the next presidential term. Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously bet wrong. She bet that she would live a certain amount of time and she didn't. She died during the Trump administration and her appointment was Amy Comey Barrett. So that's frankly kind of weird. <laughs> I think that's that seems like a strange way to pick Supreme Court justices is this sort of strange insurance policy thing. And I think we can do better. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, and it will require constitutional revision to make it be so. But what we have now is just odd. There's no way around it. I right, go back. To, let's go back to our earlier discussion, a brief discussion about FDR and uh, court packing, mm -hmm. because uh, that became a huge issue in the last presidential sure. election. And very interestingly, I think uh, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, has resisted the the yeah. idea of packing the court in favor of of liberals and democratic views, and uh, at first, as I recall, during the campaign against Trump, people asked him the question, and he said, "Well, now he said the problem is if I answer that question, then people are going to talk about my answer." <laughs> we said, yeah. Uh, "Yeah, Joe, that's the way it works." Yeah, no, Joe. But I, I personally, I think Joe Biden's. Uh, I, I like the guy. He has an extraordinary knack. For saying dumb things, there, there's a reason his staff, uh, you know, keeps plays prevent defense with the uh, press. Is as he's been in public life for 50 years, and he's still not comfortable in front of a microphone. He just things come out awkwardly sometimes. Well, he's he's great when he's reading. Yeah. Uh, usually, but yeah, 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 lately yeah. he's had he's had trouble with the teleprompter. But, but your your point is well taken. He didn't want to commit on that. He and then he got to office and did the classic 
politician dodge. He appointed a blue ribbon commission right. with so many people on it that they could never reach a consensus about anything. And they produced a, I've read through it. It's a very nice report. It summarizes all the different ways you can go about revising the court and then ends by saying, gee whiz, look at all that that we wrote. Um, <laughs> no one has the stomach for it. I mean, everyone knows that what works today, you're going to regret in 10, 15 years. So, you know, if, forgetting about FDR for a second, if today the Democratic establishment has the, the moment and they put on five new justices, in 15 years, the cycle is going to turn and there are going to be 10 new justices. It's just, it's unhealthy. And so no one may love where they are with the nine right now, but everyone's afraid of the boomerang if they do something else. Right. And could, that is healthy. Come back to bite them. Used to be afraid of that. It could come back to bite them when the uh, when the uh, political administration changes. Absolutely, everyone knows that. Everyone fears that on both, and that's why it's never gotten any traction. Is it's just that's it won't work politically and institutionally. That's terrible. That okay. Now we're up to five hundred and eight Supreme Court justices. Nineteenth right. time we've done this. That's just not the way we need to be running that railroad. There's a, from time to time, you hear a lot of, a lot of people saying, well, the constitution is uh, it's an evolving living document. Mm -hmm. You know, we shouldn't expect it to be uh, strictly uh, uh, understood the way it was intended in the beginning. And other people, the constitutionalists say, no, it is what it is. And, and what do you think about that? Well, it's, it, those are, uh, there is a lot of thinking behind both of those statements, and there are very intelligent, very well-reasoned points of view on both sides of that question. Um, let me illustrate from the Dobbs opinion, the abortion opinion, an example of how neither side can completely answer that question. The, the criticism that is made of Roe is basically, you made that up. It doesn't say the word abortion anywhere in the Constitution. Justice Blackman's opinion didn't cite very many cases. It talked a lot about medical ethics. You just made that up, and it's not the job of judges to just make things up. That's, in a nutshell, the main criticism of Roe. A criticism of the Dobbs opinion that Justice Alito wrote goes like this. Okay, Justice Alito, I get that you're all about originalism, and you got the 14th Amendment, which is what this is based on, and you looked at it, and you looked at the text, and you didn't see abortion in it. And so you went to due process, equal protection, all those other general words, and you matched up uh, the text of the 14th Amendment with what state legislatures were doing around the country when the 14th Amendment was enacted in 1868. And not surprisingly, most states had a law against abortion in some way or another. Many did. Women didn't have the right to vote in 1868 anywhere, and they didn't have the right to own property, for goodness sakes. So yes, that's an accurate snapshot of the history in 1868, more or less. You can argue about some of the history, but the context is a thousand percent different. There, there, those laws were enacted in a time where the people making the decision are not remotely comparable to the way our political society is made up today. So to, the criticism of Dobbs is, you act like you're applying an objective truth uh, that you determine from sort of looking at a point in time, but not really. That truth is not helpful when you bring it forward because the world is different. And so those, both of those criticisms are valid. I mean, it is true that just making stuff up is not a healthy thing for courts to do. It's also true that just following history to be following history is unhelpful. In the gun situation, 
the 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 recent line of thinking by the Supreme Court that tends to favor gun rights is is well grounded in history. There's a lot of evidence that the found the framers of the Constitution were really into gun rights and thought that was very important. Fair enough, but you do have to keep in the back of your mind they were thinking about muskets. Right. I mean, the idea of a rifled bullet was novel in the world at that time. It wasn't widespread. And what is a what is a well-regulated militia? Maybe and it meant a bunch of different things to the to different people. So yeah, that's true. That's an accurate summary of the history, but the world is different now. I mean, you have all these technologies that these guys could have never dreamed of back then. Are you really being honest? when you bring something forward in time like that to a world that's totally different. That's a powerful criticism of the originalist way of thinking. And, you know, it's, it's, there's no great, there's no perfect answer to this. People just have to argue about it in individual cases. You know, one thing that I haven't really, really understood very well is libertarianism. Uh, you know, I, I gather that the, uh, the, the basic concept is that the government should stay out of our business and mm-hmm. fix the roads and, and, you know, prepare for our defense. And that's about it. On the other hand, uh, you know, there are a lot of things in law that to me, I was like, why does either the state or the federal government have anything to say about who I marry? Why, why are they involved in marriage at all? And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there are probably a lot of those uh, issues. Yeah, there's, it's different strokes. I mean, the uh, marriage is uh, pure, something purely defined by state law. Constitution, of course, doesn't say anything about marriage one way or another. Right. It's something that we as a it, it's something that arose out of religious practice. Religions have marriage to sort of make that meaningful in the secular world. States adopted laws that created a legal situation called marriage. Um, those are in different universes. You can be divorced under state law, but perhaps the Catholic Church might not recognize your divorce, or a bunch of other examples like right. that. Um, and so there's a they began in the same place, but they've moved in different directions. State law, obviously, with separation of church and state, it's a separate thing. But then again, you can't forget where it came from. It came from a religious foundation, and many churches are skeptical about same-sex marriages. So there's a sort of an awkward relationship right. there between church and state. Broader question, and this is, uh, I think, where we're headed next with the whatever conservative may mean, the conservative judicial project. Um, this question you ask about why is the federal government regulating that? There, the the new crop of judges that took office during the Trump administration, the, the the conservative group of Republicans, particularly here in the Fifth Circuit, are very skeptical about what is called the administrative state. Um, and there's a very interesting opinion written in a case about the SEC by Judge Andrew Oldham of our Fifth Circuit, very intelligent, perceptive guy. Um, it was a concurrence; it wasn't the majority opinion, but it was sort of a historical explanation. And it talked about the philosophy of the uh, people that set up the SEC, Woodrow Wilson and a gentleman whose name I forget. And truthfully, some of their public statements were very arrogant. Um, they, they said things like, we just don't trust people to make good decisions about this area. It's just too important. Now, everybody has said something they regret in the media. And the, argue, the answer back the other way is, administrative agencies do very important work. There are very technical issues that we really shouldn't be involved with every day. Like you are in radio, you're a professional radio guy. You probably shouldn't be involved in and anal- allocating the electromagnetic spectrum. Right? That's just <laughs> a different thing. And you know who, wh- what frequencies the police get to broadcast on as compared to the military. Right. Somebody who knows what they're doing needs to make those decisions. 
So any, anything in, in that involves uh, uh, the interest of, of uh, the majority of the people in any given, either in the state or the, or the government and anything that involves, uh, you know, you have no right to hurt me in some way, either physically or financially or what have you. But when it comes down to simply personal matters of, uh, of uh, religion, uh, personal beliefs in any way, shape, or form. And any, you know, if a person gets married, how does that hurt anybody? I just, I just never really understood why. You know, what is this? Just because the uh, state wants to collect marriage license fees? Well, there's, there's something to that. Although some people are less into that than others, but that's a that's a valid argument, and it's an interesting. It, it, again, we talked. We begin by talking about sort of the inconsistency that people often work themselves into in thinking about abortion. The same is true in political dialogue today, you have people in our legislature, like you can go look at them, you can read their stuff online, that are very into the free market. Government ought to back out, the power grid ought to just sort of run by itself and make electricity magically without government helping it any. Um, But that same government that ought to stay out of everybody's business and let the power grid just run should very aggressively regulate abortion and who can get married. Yeah, That is not entirely consistent. And um, that's some thinking really should be given to that by folks on that side of the political aisle that are we really coming at this in a consistent way? It's a fair criticism. We could talk forever. Um, what, what other big issues do you see looming uh, for the Supreme Court, for the country, you know, for the future of people who are out carrying signs and screaming? Uh, well, the, you know, two, immigration, the gun laws and that sort of thing. Yeah, the, I think that we're um, abortion is going to be out of the federal courts for uh, the foreseeable future. It's going to be in the hands of the people's elected representatives, whoever, whoever they may be. <laughs> and that's going to be they'll be back in the courts trying to sort that out. But that's going to be an issue of process, not an issue of, of outcome. The, the, the somewhat dry topic I mentioned a minute ago about the administrative state that's where we're headed, and that's where we've been, actually, in a lot of the other Supreme Court's big cases. The case about, you know, uh, the EPA case about its power to regulate greenhouse gases, that's essentially a case about the EPA's power to regulate the economy, right, because everything makes a gas. Um, the Biden versus Texas case about the federal authority in certain immigration areas, the authority of federal agencies to do things uh, is under a lot of scrutiny in the courts right now. And uh, we're going to see cases that scale back the power of administrative agencies. Whether that will prove to be a good idea in 20, 30 years is going to depend. Who is going to pick up the slack? Is it going to be you and me in the free market? Is it going to be a state agency? I don't know. But that's going to be behind a lot of the big cases the Supreme Court looks at in the next five to 10 years. Uh, is what are we going to do about some of these agencies that have just gotten so big and so powerful? Are we good with that? Or do we need to kind of crimp back on some of the boundaries around them? And that's going to be a major, major topic. Let me uh, give you what you're, what I'm thinking from what you're saying. And let me see if you agree with this. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic in, in the big picture in terms of the country being able to sort out its differences and come to conclusions that are at least workable, if not always popular, and that the Constitution is maybe a self-correcting form of government uh, as as times change and people uh, have more experience 
And, uh, you know, as, as a culture changes, then all of these things do evolve, but the Constitution doesn't necessarily have to. Am I onto something here? I think that's the genius of it is, is, is I, the genius of the Constitution is not so much in what it says, but in what it doesn't say. It sketches broad outlines. It says we're going to have a government that looks like this. We're going to have these branches, and here generally is the idea for each of the branches. And here's a few important details about how it's going to work. But otherwise, good luck. <laughs> and that is, that's very clever. Because that structure has basically worked fine, and it's up to us to kind of fill in the details. And if we don't like details within that framework, we are free to change them and go have new details. And that's hard. It can be divisive. It can be hard fought. But the overall structure and where the Constitution quits and leaves it up to us is very ingenious. Those boundaries are very well drafted, and that silence uh, is deliberate and it has served us well. And I'm optimistic too. I think that even as hard as these conversations are going to be about abortion and as awkward as some situations are going to be, ultimately we're going to find some new consensuses, often in some surprising ways. Cities are going to be involved in ways that you might never have thought. But I think in, in 20 years, we may, I'm hopeful we may be more satisfied with that than this endless litigation mode that we've been in for so long. I'll tell you one other thing I'm, I'm optimistic about, and this, uh, this would be, uh, I think, sounds counterintuitive based upon uh, social media and uh, the screaming headlines these days, which is another issue, I, uh, yeah, you know, uh, and that is that I think probably Americans are becoming more educated, better educated in, in these issues because of social media. And all the screaming and the ranting and the and the uh, headlines that are blaring bombshell revelation and all of this stuff. And I think the more people talk about it, and a little bit of uh, uh, you know a, a, a thought or an opinion, uh, a, a perspective that hadn't occurred to me, suddenly actually kind of gets through, and I start to cu- get curious about it and I'd look say, into it. I'd call it a two-click phenomenon. If we can, if we can make ourselves be two-click people, we're going to be okay. The one-click is I see the meme that I like. I'm like, ooh, we got them there. There's a meme. But if you make <laughs> the second click and you actually go to an article in a reasonably objective source that has some pros and cons, yeah. it takes you maybe a minute to get pretty well educated about the pros and cons of any particular issue. And if we can just get in the habit of two-clicking, to yeah. just when you see a meme, it looks cool. Take the second and find something somewhere halfway objective. You're you're way more educated than you could ever have been 30 years ago, or than the founders would ever have dreamed. And, I mean, and I would, one of the reasons the Electoral College is in the original Constitution uh-huh. is a fear that people wouldn't know there was an election. Right. <laughs> people were that far out in the countryside that they just didn't think they could find them. <laughs> And we're so far beyond that now, it's not even funny. Okay, now that you brought it up, what do you think about the Electoral College and its future? Oh, good heavens. It's, uh, it, is, it has a very awkward history. It was motivated in part by people living on the other side of the creek that floods, and that we don't have that concern anymore. There was a big slavery component to it of trying to strike a balance between free yeah. states and slave states. That's obviously out of date. Um, it's kind of like the House and Senate. I mean... No one loves that the House and Senate are the way they are, but it's a balance that has generally worked more or less. And no one really loves the Electoral College, but I haven't really heard a a proposal that's better. We don't want to become 
the country of California, Texas, New York, and Florida. Right. What you would become if you did the popular vote. And so, yes, these little states have a disproportionate voice, but if you radically change it, you end up giving four states the voice. So I don't have an answer. What do you aspire to? Judgeship? No, I'm, I love being where I am. As a judge, as I said at the beginning, you can't choose your agenda. You can't choose what you want to write about. You get what comes in the door. Yeah. And that may or may not be interesting for that matter. Um, I'm very lucky to be at this firm with all these cool trial lawyers. I have this, this I, I'm 54. I feel like I'm 24 with all this energy going on around all the time, all these That's things great. going to court. It's very exciting. Um, and I have the freedom because it's a smaller law firm to talk to folks like you without having to run it by the committee. I can write as long as I don't say anything too dumb. And I'm very happy to try to educate uh, in my opportunities that I have to engage with the public. I feel like that's a function that we need more of. And I'm happy to keep doing that as long as, like the Hamilton says, as long as I can hold my pen. It's none of my business, but I'll ask anyway. You did mention in passing early on in the conversation that you have a wife. Do you have children? Uh, you I- know. What do you want to share about your personal life? Anything at all? Oh, is it fair enough? So my wife, Margarita, is uh, from Mexico originally, Monterey in the north. We met when I was in law school. She was in graduate school at the University of Texas. Uh, she then went back to law school. Um, and uh, we live in Dallas, of course, where I was born uh, way back when. We have four kids. We have a, uh, uh, well, we start at the bottom. We have a 12-year-old who's going into seventh grade boy. We have a, a 14-year-old boy starting high school, freshman. Um, we have a 17-year-old girl who's entering her senior year in high school, wow. and our oldest is uh, 21 and may be a junior in college. We're not totally <laughs> sure about that. He's transferring yeah. um, to West Texas A&M. He wants to be a band director. Uh, in fact, right now, he is directing a band. He's over in Joshua, uh, Texas, oh teaching. Uh, where exactly he's going to be when he transfers, I don't know for sure, but he is at least registered in a college is about the best I could say about that. So that's what, what, that's what we're up to. You're lucky. You've got four kids and then they're spread out enough to, uh, that you'll, that you'll always have, uh, always have that, uh, that, that, that wonderful experience of watching the next one come along and develop and having some hand in that. Uh, you know, I have one son, from my previous marriage. My wife has a son from a previous marriage. We both consider them both of our sons and each of them has a son. Oh my. So we've got a whole bunch of boys and no girls. And now even our grandchildren are getting to an age where they're going to be off on their own soon. And we're looking around and frequently saying, where are the babies? We need some babies here. I can loan you the 12 year old if you want the, uh, (laughs) the, the, the the gender thing. So our, we had two brothers, Cecilia was a young girl. Uh, when you found out we were going to have her younger brother and she said, or her second younger brother. And she says, uh, it's going to be a boy or a girl. Well, it's going to be a boy. So you're going to have a third brother. She goes, if I pray really hard, will God change it? And the girl said, no, no, God's done. It's going to be a boy. <laughs> you're late. You're yeah, late sorry. Says, can't yeah. help you on this one. So, David, thank you so much. This thank you very much. Fun. This was a delight. You asked great questions and I appreciate the chance to visit with you. Well, I expect maybe we'll find something else to talk about down the road. Well, uh, amazingly that, enough, issues just keep coming along. In this world hey, I know you write a couple of blogs, right? Are those, are those pretty much uh, in, in, intended for the legal community or is that something that other people would like to read? They're pretty technical. 600 Camp follows the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which guess what its address is? 600 Camp in New Orleans. Uh, 600 Commerce follows the Dallas Court of Appeals. It's located at 600 Commerce in wow. uh, Dallas. Who knew? They have the same yeah. number. 
Um, but they're they're intended for other lawyers like me. They summarize case holdings and trends in those courts. I have a podcast, uh, Coal Mind, where I do pretty short capsules about yeah. constitutional issues. It's on sort of an erratic schedule. Whenever something occurs to me, I do something that can be every week. If I'm on a roll, it can be every few months if I'm not. Yeah. Uh, but that's just another way of putting some thoughts out there. That's a little bit more, a little bit less tactical, a little bit more. Little less yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The Coal Mind. Mind. Coal yes, mine. there you go. It's like is a it, clever pun there. Yeah, is it the or just coal mine? Uh, I've never thought about that. Uh, it can be whatever you want it to be. Well, it matters when you're doing a search for it, but I can try two ways. Yeah, typically when I search for it, I generally pull up a lot of resources about coal mining. Google hasn't <laughs> bumped me up to the top of the list yet, so I got. I have, I have, I have seen it. I have seen it several times, and I've really enjoyed it as much as much as I enjoyed this uh, conversation. David, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good luck on all your endeavors, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Talk to you on the radio, as they say. All right. Take care. I'll right. see you later. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.